Welcome back, or if it's your first time, I'm glad to have you here. I'm Matt Fendora, and you're tuned in to the Choose to Live, Love, and Grow podcast, where we journey together toward becoming the best version of ourselves. Using mind, body, heart, and spirit as the anchors of our podcast, join me as we set sail into the depths of self-discovery, unraveling the interconnected layers that shape our growth. If you resonate with today's conversation, consider subscribing to the podcast. Your support means the world to us and ensures you never miss an empowering episode. Welcome back to the Choose to Live, Love, and Grow podcast, the podcast all about being the best version of yourself through mind, body, heart, and spirit. Today, we are here with Dr. Miriam Mandel. Dr. Mandel is a board-certified pediatrician. She did her internship at St. Vincent's Sisters of Charity Hospital in New York and completed her residency at Carolina's Medical Center in Charlotte, North Carolina. After moving to Ohio in January 2003, she worked in a private practice in Lake County and as a pediatric hospitalist at St. John's Hospital in Westlake. She worked at both locations for nine years. While working with children and raising two of her own, she realized the importance of mindfulness and self-soothing skills that could be nurtured from childhood into late adolescence. Building upon this foundation, her research suggests that young people can develop into happier, healthier adults while enhancing a sense of self-esteem using simple tools such as mindfulness, relaxation techniques, and a bit of understanding about the habitual behaviors and the brain. She's a health and wellness coaches, coach for teens, young adults, and parents of adolescents. She strives to help eliminate whatever suffering these young people and families are going through daily. Dr. Mandel's research in this area has spanned more than 14 years, and she has been honored to work with students in elementary schools and grade schools. Additionally, she has performed education sessions for educators K-12, doctors, nurses, nurse practitioners, and university and graduate students. This well-rounded applied research over an extensive period has provided Dr. Mandel with a unique perspective on the importance of teaching individuals to live happier, more productive, and less stressful lives. Combining this research with her knowledge and passion for medicine, she delivers simple, effective information to help transform lives. Without further further ado, here is Dr. Miriam Mandel. Thanks, Matt. It's great to be here. I'm so excited to have you on. I know this, um, following you on LinkedIn, you're just like a wealth of knowledge. And I love just seeing all the research that I wouldn't normally do myself. And I just see all of it. And it makes me want to do the research myself because it just it, it's so fascinating to see this different side of things and like things you didn't realize have such an impact. Yeah, I know. I know. And that's why like I feel so blessed and lucky to be able to have this as to do this for a living because, um, you know, obviously I went to medical school. I love to study. I love to research. I love all that stuff. And now I get to do that kind of in my own direction on what really interests me and what I really feel is important for working with these kids. Um, because I see a lot and I've seen a lot for many, many years. Mm -hmm. And so I'm able to kind of put it together and culminate it into a thing that, I think in my population and in my area is really helpful. So it's extremely rewarding um, and very satisfying. It's very satisfying work. Mm -hmm. I can only imagine. Yeah. Yeah. It's great. It's great. And then I have two, two adolescents of my own. Um, So yeah, the more, you know, I just feel like the more these kids know and the more they're given the truth um, and educated on what's going on in their brain and their body, then they can just make, better decisions because they're not going to listen to us as parents. They're not going to listen to us, you know, for, 
you know, as parents, basically, you know, I mean, kids find people they trust. Um, and, you know, that's great if they're able to do that, if they could really find someone they trust that's well-educated and informed in the schools or whatever, or an aunt or an uncle or, you know, somebody that they really trust. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, so a lot of times, like I'll be asked to step in. Usually it's because there's some kind of an emergency, some kind of crisis that's going on. And then a lot of times I stay with these kids over a period of time to just help them avoid some of those things in the future, uh, which is really the basis of what of really what I do is mm-hmm. kind of help them learn skills to regulate themselves. So they're not constantly seeking either to be, you know, in, in negative ways to feel like they need to be part of something or they need, mm-hmm. um, you know, to use drugs to regulate instead of you know, things that are uh, healthier. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what what sparked your transition from clinical pediatrics to researching, teaching, and coaching? Well, I've always been a little different in the way I handled patients in that I always asked the qu- different questions. Like I never, of course, you know, you ask the general questions of, you know, birth history, health history, past history, that kind of thing. But mm-hmm. I, I was always fascinated because I saw these trends about like what was going on with these kids that they would manifest these physical ailments that they generally were, they were healthy kids. And then the more and more that I dug into that and opened my mind and my, my eyes to what was going on, I saw how the family environment, the environment they were in, maybe their school environment was toxic, was really toxic. And Mm -hmm. nobody was aware of it because it was their norm, you know? Mm -hmm. So Mm -hmm. I I use this example a lot. That was the, my last, actually my last patient when I decided I was totally done. Now this had been building obviously. And I'd been asking these questions for years, but I had a little boy come into the hospital that was um, five years old and he wound up losing half of his intestines. Like he had a twisted gut. And he wound up having to go into surgery and he lost half of his intestines. And not only was it a fight, um, that's kind of a long story, to get him the care he needed. But when I realized, when I met the family, I, I swear to you, that I had a stomachache within three minutes of interacting with this family. It was awful. So there was, it was actually that the dispute was between the grandparents and it was, um, it was kind of brutal. And basically I was feeling pulled in both directions. So when kids are feeling that they have like this split energy with them, no matter how young they are, they're going to manifest. If they can't process it, they're going to manifest it physically. And that's what happens to us as adults too. If we're split inside, like something is telling us one thing, but we're feeling another and we're not, it, we're not conditioned to really follow our own instincts and and trust ourselves, then we're going to go whichever way the wind blows because we're not, we're, we're, we don't know what to do, especially as, as children, you know, I mean, children mm-hmm. have, no, they, they, they are really at the mercy of their caretakers. So um, basically what happens is we, we, we take these kids and we help them physically and then we send them back to toxic environments and then nothing happens except you know it's going to come out in another way and this is very evident when you work in a hospital and you see these frequent flyers that we get um but it happens you know it happens on smaller levels all the time 
So I just wanted to really help on a different level. I I wanted to get to the more to the core of what I felt some of these kids needed. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's really just self-empowerment and knowing that they have a say and they they have more control than they're led to believe in our society. They they really do. They really do. And kids, especially like tweens and, and teens, they get this information really fast. I mean, you right now, my youngest client is nine, but I generally don't work that young. I have a couple of 11-year-olds who are like 11 going on 30, you know. Um, but these kids, you know, from say 11 to I work all the way up to in the 20s, these kids get it fast. They get it fast, a lot faster than a, than adults do. <laughs> So um, it's it's another another way that it's very rewarding because you can see their transition so quickly as soon as they make their decision and they set their intention to do what they're doing, what they want to do. They just need a little guidance. So as as a so I have three kids. So as a parent, how do we ensure that we're not creating a toxic environment for them? How do we create that safe environment for them? Oh, that's a that's kind of a loaded question. Um, just because a lot of times we don't realize that our norm may not be a healthy norm, you know, um, and sometimes it is, you know, um, you know, kids are generally there, you know, some kids are more apt to act out as they get older. Um, and it's not about it's it, none of this is about blame. It's not it's not about blaming the parents or the parents taking blame. It's it's really not about that at all, because we all bring our own past and we all bring our own experiences to the present and into our parenting parenting skills um but basically that's such a good question um i wish i had like a better a better no one's ever asked me that question which is surprising um i feel like it's really just making sure that they have resources to explore and to feel safe in. Like one thing that I I find that this is, I've, I've seen this over, over and over again in certain situations where parents don't, they, they actually get a little jealous of having their child talk to somebody else, like another adult in their life. And I think that what's really important for parents to understand is that's totally normal that your kids are going to seek help outside of you. Um, because that's a natural part of adolescence. It's a natural part of evolution of the growth of a human mm-hmm. is that they have to seek um, refuge outside of the family unit. That's just, if we didn't have this adolescent period of exploration, of taking risks, of seeking comfort in other places and finding their own group, we wouldn't survive as a species. So if you think about it, if, if adolescents never left the nest, if they kind of stuck around and and that was the norm for everybody, there would be a lot of problems, right? Because everybody in the same family clusters would all be together and they would be close in relation. And then that can obviously cause problems. So, you know, with interbreeding and things like that, that's what I mean. Yeah. Um, so the natural evolution is for us to find our own tribes, then come back. Right. So mm-hmm. it's not that these kids are not going to come back and it's not that it's unusual for them to come back. It's actually that's great if you have a great if you have a good relationship, mm-hmm. but it's very natural for them to seek assistance and seek belonging elsewhere. 
finding their own tribe without, you know, and then, and then coming back. So a lot of times parents worry that these, their kids aren't going to come back. So they try to hold on and that's the worst thing you can do. Interesting. Cause I feel like I related to that so much because we didn't have that growing up. So like, we didn't have the ability to go talk to anybody else. So for us, it was, Hey, this is your family cluster and you're going to stay here, which is partly why that first opportunity that I had when I got to go work out with the Marines, I was like, this is amazing. This is something new. And then that's why I ended up joining the Marines and, you know, went overseas and did things that was actually way away from my immediate family because I could actually have experiences and learn. Right, right. From a different, um, and that's what, that's what growing up is about, you know, and, and parents fear that their, their kids are just not going to come back. So they mistakenly hold on too tight because it's the same thing. I mean, it's, it's so cliche, but you know, you, you see these kids in college. I have one who's a freshman in college and I work, I work with a ton of college students. Mm-hmm. So I see, and I, and I've worked some with some of them before they got to college. So I know them from high school and the stories that I hear, I mean, it's so typical, like these kids that are have been so sheltered and not been able to experience and have that those healthy boundaries of, okay, you can go and I'm here for you and I'll always be here for you. These kids that don't have that, that are so close, that are so tightly held, these kids go crazy in college. They go absolutely crazy. I mean, um, and I know this, I know this over and over and over again. It's, you know, it's not just cliche. It's, it's really true. So there's a balance. There there has to be some kind of a balance. And if parents don't really know how to do that, then there's plenty of help out there to to help them um, navigate these difficult times because they're they're difficult for everybody, not just for the teenager. Mm-hmm. You know, they're well, not just for the parent, <laughs> for the teenager too. <laughs> Depends on how you look at it. You know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, so, what are some of the most important things to consider when it comes to the teenage brain? So one thing that a lot of people, well, I think the first thing to consider is that teenagers and adolescents, young, I mean, I I worked in middle schools, I worked with gifted kids and I've worked in middle schools and I've taught them a lot about their brain and they love to learn about their brain. Generally, in in general, kids love to learn about their brain. And the more they know, the more they're going to take ownership of that. This is, this is in me, it's staying with me until I die. So I better take care of it kind of thing. And understanding generally what's going on within the brain um, is going to give them a huge leg up. So just like in normal development of, you know, babies walk at one and they start cruising at nine months and they, you know, they sit up at six months, all those things that are basically general across the whole world and the whole world population, you know, generally, um, the same thing is happening in the adolescent brain. And it's the second biggest time of reconstruction of the brain. Mm-hmm. So the first one is in infancy, right? Because babies are, have all these new, everything is brand new. Mm-hmm. And now the second part of this reconstruction is there's a complete rewiring being done in the brain. And this is overwhelming for the child. They don't really understand why they're acting so different and why their friends are acting so different. Hence middle school, right? Mm-hmm. Like there's a, there's a lot of drama, especially with girls, a lot of drama. There's there's drama with boys too. You just don't hear it as much. Um, but there's this very basic way the brain develops. And, and when parents and kids and teachers understand this, they understand the student and the child better. 
which is basically it develops back to front and inside out. So if you're if you look at a a, a diagram of the brain, what's happening is the the very primitive parts of the brain, like the fight or flight, breathing, um, the reflexes, these are all developed very young, even some at birth. Obviously, they can breathe at birth. So back, like their brainstem back here, this controls the breathing and some of the regulation heartbeat. That's obviously when they're born. Now, when that's why when babies are premature, they have some problems breathing. They have some dysregulation in their heart, right? Because it may be not be fully developed yet. But generally, after normal uh, gestation period, those are developed. And then you're, and then it goes from back and, you know, the emotional centers are back here and then it comes up to the front and then inside, which is again, all the, the, like the, the, the oldest parts of the brain, the, what they call reptilian parts of the brain are developed first. And then the outer cortex or the outer layer is the newest part of the brain. Mm -hmm. So if you go back to front, inside out, you're talking about the inside and the outside in the front right here, which is the prefrontal cortex, which is the last to develop. And that's what we, you know, there's ex the executive functions of the brain, there's emotional regulation, there's decision making, there's um, organizing, planning, time management, all these things that um, teenagers generally are, are really sometimes struggling with, right? Mm -hmm. Acting appropriate in different situations they just don't they don't necessarily that part of their brain isn't fully functioning until they're up to 25 26 years old so this process that's taking part of development is going to make a huge impact on things substances and things that happen traumas that happen in their life during this phase so once you introduce trauma once you introduce um substances, all this gets dysregulated, you know, mm -hmm. a lot of this can become dysregulated. And that's why there's a specific, I mean, there's a lot of different things. I mean, these receptors are on every part of the brain, but when you are like one of the, the big things that I talk about is th that's kind of fascinating is what happens. There's these synapses or these brain connections that happen right before adolescence, before adolescence, and in the younger years that there's just, they're just, these synapses are growing and, and getting bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. And there's like this mass of neurons in their brain. Mm -hmm. And this is the time of life when kids are just asking a ton of questions. I don't know if you remember when your kids were young and did some of them like just ask everything they're asking and they don't even care what the answer is, right? Mm -hmm. They're just asking these questions and um, you know, and, and this is a part of the, the time of development. It's called exuberance, where they just, they, they're just blossoming into all this information. They're just basically gathering data about the world. Mm -hmm. And then they get into a part of adolescence where they hit puberty and then everything seems to change. Their personality changes, their friend groups changes. Again, we're talking middle school, their, their talents or their, not so much talents, but their um, interests change. Like a kid that was always loved art and painting or, you know, things like that. All of a sudden the parents are like, you know, they haven't touched their art supplies in months and they're like, what's going on? And then they have all these different things that are happening. And what's going on there is all those neurons that are being, you know, kind of coming together and 
interacting and mingling and seeing what's working, how the world works, 50% of them get cut. They get pruned. It's called, it's like pruning a tree. So 50% of those connections or those synapses get cut. And basically what the, the adolescent brain is doing over this time period, period is fine tuning and becoming more efficient in its processing and what it's going to look like when it becomes an adult. So this is like adulting. They're going through like an adulting phase here, right? So now they have these different cuts in their, you know, in their synapses. And so what they're using during this time, it's like use it or lose it. If they're not using some of these things, they're going to go away. But if you use it during your adolescent phase, those things are going to stay. So if there's something that the kid, a kid wants to do, like um, say they want to play baseball, but there's like the parents are, don't want the kid to play baseball because they want them to do other things. Mm -hmm. If there's a significant amount of time during adolescence that they're not playing that sport, they're going to lose a lot of those connections that they originally had. It's mm -hmm. just like learning a language, right? Like kids can learn languages so quickly, mm -hmm. but once adolescence is over, it's much harder to learn a language because those connections have already been formed and they're already matured. That's why for an adult, it's so hard to learn these processes, Some, you know, learn, take up a new, I mean, we can do it. It just takes a lot more time and mm -hmm. energy. So then after this pruning process happens, there's something called myelinization, which is basically a fatty tissue that says, okay, this is solid. This is staying. I'm going to make sure that these are um, the most efficient we can get them. And they put this fatty coating on it. Okay. It's called myelinization. It's just like if we had an electrical wire and you insulated it, so everything moves faster along that wire. It's the same thing in the brain. So um, myelinization happens and then um, the brain becomes about 2000% more efficient. So if you think about it, like a baby coming out of the womb, they they can't even move, right? They're mm -hmm. infants and they can't even regulate their motion. Um, their eyesight, their, you know, they don't have, all they have is the primitive reflexes from the back part of the brain, mm -hmm. but then coming into this adolescent and adulthood, those connections that were made and pruned and myelinated and kind of set up to be, to be in a healthy, a healthy adult, um, are extremely more efficient, right? We don't mm -hmm. have any problems generally with, if we're healthy moving or our eyesight or, um, things like that. So, what parents don't understand and a lot of teachers too, and this can, this might be able to help you understand your child a little better. Remember they're born with the back part of their brain pretty much intact, um, but pretty, pretty, um, you know, as they get a little bit older, it's pretty much intact. So they, these kids have very, very big adult size emotions, but they don't have the front of the brain to process them. So these kids have, you know, they have these big, huge feelings um, and fears and whatever, you know, because they're activated the fight or flight system in the back of their brain for survival. Um, they get these big emotions and then we they can't regulate them on their mm -hmm. own a lot of times. So there's a mismatch, you see? So, mm -hmm. um, and then there are different parts of the brain that are connected. So um, a lot of times during this this period, like kids will be, um, like test anxiety is a big thing. Now, this is all things that we, you know, not the ideal time to have test anxiety um, and have those parts of your brain disconnected when you're going through school, right? But this is just the way it's set up. Mm -hmm. um, so a lot of times test anxiety will be because the 
part of the brain that's in, in fight or flight, it's always asking like, am I safe? The amygdala, right? Am I safe? It's telling the child, am I safe? Am I safe? Am I safe? Generally in adolescence, the answer is no, <laughs> generally, because there's a lot of stuff going on. They don't have the capability to really regulate it. They don't have the capability of the prefrontal cortex to put the brake on the fear and the fight or flight. Okay, mm. That's what it does. A lot of times people think of it as the prefrontal cortex is the brake. Okay. That's not developed yet. So impulse is higher. Emotional regulation is dysregulated a bit. A bit. So if you're in a situation where you're in a lot of fear and you are there's also the part of the brain, like we talked during in, in school and education about remembering the hippocampus, right? So the short-term memory, like you're studying or you're practicing for baseball or whatever, and then you get up there and you freeze. It's because those parts of the brain are actually talking to each other. And if we can't, if these kids can't find a way to calm themselves down, which they can, they can, that part of the brain that needs to access those memories of like what to do. What did I just study? I, I, I'm blank. I can't remember. I just studied all night. I, you know, I can't remember. If we're able to calm ourselves down, we will, those kids will again have access to those memories that are right there for them. Because as soon as the fear gets subsides, like the game is over and they lost and they're all disappointed, they're going to remember, right? Or the exam is over and like, I can't believe I didn't remember that. It's just because those parts of the brains are connected. So this is actually good news in that we can regulate that stress. These kids can regulate that stress. They can learn self-soothing techniques. They can speak to somebody who, who can help soothe them, who can get them back under control under stressful situations. And then they'll have access to that information. Does that make sense? Does mm -hmm. that make sense? Mm -hmm. Okay. So how, what measures can we take to actually help protect that brain and to allow it to continue growing? What do you mean? Like one of the things that you mentioned was that some, there are some things that impact that teenage brain, like substance and things like that. So what preventative measures can we take as either teenagers or as parents to help make sure that the brain continues growing oh, gotcha. and forming gotcha. in the right way? So the biggest thing um, that's under their control, like there's genetics that are going to be under, you know, the control of some of the things that are going on. Um, but it's the age of onset of some of these things that kids are doing. Um, and the big thing is to delay like any kind of substance, you know, whether it's alcohol, um, nicotine, um, cannabis, because these all all those things have, we have receptors in our brains for them. That means that we make them on our own. Like our body makes endogenous cannabinoids to help regulate our system and keep our brain calm when we need it. Mm. We have nicotinic receptors that the nicotine is actually going to get attached to. So what happens in with any kind of artificial or substance that we're bringing in externally, it's going to dysregulate our internal systems of making these substances. So that's what causes addiction. That's what causes tolerance, meaning that they're going to need more and more of it. Hmm. So one of the big things I've been talking about recently 
um, and doing some other podcasts on is the use of marijuana in the teenage brain versus the full, fully developed adult brain. Completely different stories here. So the fact that, like the, the reason that alcohol, say, is you know, there's a, an age limit of 21 is because they have done many studies to show that if you start drinking at 21, your chance of becoming an alcoholic are much less than if you start at say 15. Huge difference in the number of having an addiction. Okay. Mm -hmm. Same thing with cannabis. If you start cannabis use at, at, uh, you know, say 21 or 25, it's going to be a huge difference than being addicted and getting um, running into problems than when you're 15, you know, many, many things, because think of all the things that are going on in the brain. So now there's some hormones or some neurochemicals in the brain that will attach to these receptors in our brain, same as um, THC that, you know, the, the psychoactive substance in, in cannabis. So, when you introduce those substances at such, it, it, the affinity for the for the receptor is huge. It's not like you know we have a, a a chemical in our brain that fits nicely into the receptor. With with THC, it's like they consider it like a sledgehammer. Like it it just the affinity is so big for that. And what happens is it will dysregulate the functioning of that part of. The, that function of the brain. So say, just for example, we talked about, we talked about pruning and we talked about myelinization. So that whole process is, is creating the adult, what neurons stay, what neurons leave, right? When you introduce THC into that story, it's going to come in and it's going to dysregulate that process. So they're finding, they're finding in study after study that when they take a cross section of the brain and they find the cortex, that the part like the white versus gray, so like the white matter of the brain is the myelinization, that process that we talked about that's regulated during adolescence, right? Mm -hmm. So this myelinization that's happening, they're finding that that's becoming dysregulated and they're not, it's not able to myelinate as much. There's not as much myelination going on. So there's more gray matter. So now think about that. Like that's a big, huge deal. I mean, that's the whole development of the brain. And that's just one aspect. The whole development of the brain is going on during this time of their life. And you're introducing a substance that's completely dysregulating that whole process. So there's going to be some consequences to that. The thing is that Science takes a long time to catch up with, you know, because unless it's a hundred percent proven, you know, they're not going to come out with anything, any strong statement. Like think about it, like with tobacco, right? Like the, the government knew that tobacco caused lung cancer 50 years before that information came out public. So that's 50 years of people smoking, thinking that it wasn't that bad for you. Mm -hmm. Right. So think of the experiment that we're taking in this country with making, you know, I mean, the, the numbers of kids that have started using cannabis has, it, it, it's huge, right? The, mm -hmm. the numbers of psychosis that have gone up since cannabis is huge. The number of suicides that have gone up 
it all trends. It's trending with. Now, I'm not saying there's an absolute direct correlation. There's a cause, you know, causation, but there's a correlation between these things. Mm -hmm. And these things are being studied and studied. Now, what's going to happen at the end of all these studies when we find out? It's like basically people don't under parents don't understand that the THC and the marijuana that the kids are smoking now is completely different than we were smoking say back in the seventies and eighties, it's just a completely different substance. You're talking about a two to 3% THC level that was growing in plants. Now we're genetically engineered to be 15, 20, 25%. You know, I mean, look at, that's a huge, huge difference in, in chemical compounds. Mm-hmm. And then the THC that's being manufactured and being made in labs and um, engineered is up to 45 to 95% THC. So that's, that's, that's no joke. You know, that's mm-hmm. just, it's, and then that's what these kids are putting into their brain into this, such a critical time of, of development. So um, it's just things that these kids don't know. The parents don't know. It's just not, it's not, you know, and then there's this whole general concept that kids are thinking it's safe. Parents think it's safe. Why would kids think it's not safe if they're living in this country and other countries around the world? It's, you know, it's legal. It actually can help you. It could help some people like with, it's like medicine, mm-hmm. you know, it's, it grows naturally. You know, it's, it's, you know, God made it. That's what you hear. I mean, you hear this all the time and, and you can't blame them. I mean, you can't blame them, you know, because that's the general concept is that marijuana is not harmful, mm-hmm. but people don't know all the things that are involved and how it's evolved and changed and how, I mean, THC at these levels are neurotoxic. There is no question. This is undoubt. This is not disputed. You know, the, the, a lot of people still think that cannabis isn't even addictive. I mean, it's crazy that people think they think it's only psychologically addictive, which is just false. It is physiologically addictive, you know, to very large, quite a, a large number of, uh, I don't have the, I, I mean, I have them written down, but I'm not, I won't go into them, but it's, it's, it is definitely physiologically addictive. And when you get these kids at this age that are developing these circuits, every time a habit is formed, it's, it's being reinforced and reinforced and reinforced. And if these kids are starting at such a young age, these circuits are being reinforced and reinforced, and then they're being, they're being, um, made more efficient. It's like this habit is going to be so much harder to break when they're an adult than if you start. And that's why the addictive rate, the addiction rate is so much higher when you start at a young age and you're a chronic user. Um, And even if you're not a chronic user, even at lower, you can, you can start with just five milligrams a day of nicotine with, we're talking vaping here, Mm -hmm. five milligrams a day will get you onto uh, that. They're saying that it only has to be that high for you to start to become addicted to nicotine, which is not very high. Mm-hmm. So um, that's another thing, vaping. I mean, these kids just, you know, they're being marketed. Middle school is being a, a huge marketing ground for vaping. Um, the flavors, the um, the way that the ads are, are, you know, on the internet, the eye level. They, I mean, they even do, they even put products at eye level for middle schoolers, mm-hmm. you know, so it's um these kids are being manipulated and they're being taken advantage of and they don't know and one and one thing that i know with working with kids all these years they don't want to be manipulated 
So if you can, if, if they understand some of the stuff that's going on, they're able to make better choices for themselves, you know, and that's what's so, mm-hmm. I mean, to me just is so infuriating. I mean, you have these big tobacco companies like Philip Morris that, you know, th- these big tobacco companies that own these vape products that are now trying to make up their revenue by targeting these middle schoolers, by mm-hmm. giving them all these flavors. And some of these flavors and the additives that they add to these, these vape products, they, these kids get a, like, they get like a little bit of a rush when they take their first hit, you know, and they're chasing that all, all day, pretty mm-hmm. much. They're getting like a, um like a buzz from it that they mm-hmm. like, you know, and the way that it's made now where it can be completely you know, indiscreet, they, they can do it right in the classroom. They don't, and they don't get caught. It doesn't smell. They -hmm. can hide it in pens or vape or like anything. They can hide it in lipstick. It's hidden everywhere. So the parents wouldn't really know what to look for. Um, it looks like sometimes it looks like a little electronic. So, um, the kids think they're getting away with something because that's what they're kind of being told and being reinforced to do. Mm -hmm. Like, you can do this and do it while while nobody nobody knows in front of your parents, in front of your teachers, and in the bathrooms. And you're not you don't you're not going to get caught, you know. Mm-hmm. So they think they're getting away with something, but what are they really getting away with? You know, they're being manipulated. Yeah. And then they're going to have to reap, you know, reap the consequences of multiple things that I, and I see. I see all the time. I see it with these poor kids all the time and they have no idea. They have no idea they're even addicted or that nicotine is even in there or that nicotine is addictive. They think that they're vaping flavors. Mm-hmm. They just think they're vaping flavors and it kind of feels good, mm-hmm. you know? Um, and then I get the kid who's in a panic because they're either hallucinating or they're complete brain fog and they're scared to death that it's not going to go away. Um, they have palpitations, they have seizures. I've seen that it can induce seizures, grand mal seizures, which is no joke when, you know, one kid should watch their friend have a grand mal seizure. They'll never do it. They'll never vape again. It's scary. So yeah, it's just, um, unfortunate that they're kind of in, in the middle of all this. So let's say that, um, a teenager or adolescent middle school or whoever starts to use one of those substances, what can they do or what can we do as a parent to help prevent that continuation, continue that pattern? Well, there are some, there are some organizations that could help kids with accountability is a big thing. So what I do, like I, I got some, I got a lot of the vaping kids when the parents started to notice during COVID because they weren't able to go to school to get their supply. So mm. I got some kids that were withdrawing. Parents didn't know what was going on. But they had found maybe they had found a vape pen or something a while ago. But they said the kid quit, and which I never believe, um, be, and not because I don't believe the kid. It's because they the studies show that that vaping this high this they the, the nicotine that they're vaping now is about double the amount of that was you know back in the day. Again, they're it's manipulating, so it's more addictive. They're saying that. They say it's just as hard to quit as cocaine or heroin. Now, do you think an 11 year old on his own can quit heroin? No. Or cocaine? So no. why would parents think that they're not, you know, they said they were vaping, but they they don't do it anymore. That's bullshit. That's bullshit. You know, they're still vaping. Mm-hmm. You just don't know. Chances are, 
you know, unless the kid has gotten professional help. So that's, oh, I'm always kind of, I'm always skeptical when the parents tell me that. And then when I talk to the kids, they, um, they usually within, within one or two sessions, they usually tell me the truth. And then I'm able to educate them on exactly what they're doing, why, why it was so easy for them to do it. It's really not these kids fault. It's really not. They're in a, they're in a, say 11, 12, 13 years old, they're in a part of development where they can't make rational decisions on their own. Generally, Mm -hmm. they don't have their, they're so um, reward, like the reward for an adolescent is so like their brain lights up so much more than a child or an adult. Like they are so driven by reward. Mm. Um, They don't care about the risks, right? We know this mostly about adolescents, right? They don't care Mm -hmm. as much about the risk as a child or an adult would. Even though adults like the reward just as much, their brains are not lighting up like an adolescent's brain is when we put them under these functional MRIs. Mm -hmm. So if there's a risk involved and there's a a big, you know, big reward, these kids are going to be much more apt to try it. Mm-hmm. So if their friends are doing it, they're going to get the reward of being part of something. They're going to get the reward of this addictive substance that makes them feel good. And they're even with vaping, they're going to get the reward of that first buzz. Like mm-hmm. it only lasts 30 seconds. You know, they're also getting a huge dopamine hit. Mm-hmm. So these kids are, they don't have, they don't stand a chance if they don't, um, if they're not educated, if this is not spoken about, you know, if you can just speaking to your child about this, these simple things will will help prevent some of those going off into the weeds, you know, mm-hmm. and having them think twice. So I heard about this, you know, um, uh, maybe I shouldn't. Just having that question in their mind, um, because it's not like uh, it's not like when I speak to these kids, like I'm trying to scare them. It's scary what's actually mm-hmm. happening. I just tell them the truth. You know, when they ask me, like, I remember there was this one kid who asked me, he had such bad brain fog. He was vaping. He was 11. And he had such bad brain fog. Um, and he was so scared it wasn't going to go away. And I couldn't promise him that it was going to go away. I mean, he was 11 and he wasn't, he was, he was smoking actually for two years already. So he started when he was nine. Wow. Could I promise that it could go away? No, I can't promise that. Will it probably, if he stopped right now, Mm -hmm. if he stopped, but I can't, I can't really, I don't, I don't know. Everybody's different, right? I don't know what's going to happen if this kid continues, if he's having, and this kid also had, he would lay in bed and he would have like these, um, hallucination. He was hallucinating a little bit. He would just get then paranoid, like paranoid. He was also doing marijuana too, actually. And that reminded me, he started vaping marijuana this, that past year when he was 11, but it started with the the vaping, which is such a normal, such a normal progression. I mean, I don't know many kids, older teenagers that vape just, just vape products. Many times they go and will vape marijuana too. Hmm. So, um, like, why wouldn't they? If you think about it as a teenager, like, why wouldn't I? Why wouldn't I? It's available. It's safe. Everyone's doing it. It's legal. You know, I can get it at the store. Yeah. <laughs> my, my my parents have some in their bedroom. I could just use that, you know? So having that talk with them, educating them, educating yourself. Um, if you get into a, a situation where your, your kid is addicted, um, get them help. Get mm-hmm. them help and, um, and work through it and make sure that they know that you're going to be there for them. You know, I am. Um, kids are afraid to tell their parents, right? They're afraid. You know, I, I, I would. I'm sure most 
caring parents would want their kids to come to them. So, and that's why it's so important for them to have an outside source to be able to talk to. Um, so you, you can have that communication. And what I always do is I, I talk to the kid, I talk to the kids and have them confront their parents with me there. I'm usually there and I'll help. Um, but they make the decision, okay, I'm ready to tell them. And then that's when the healing begins. It's not, you know, it's not the end of the world. It's actually the be- opening up of a new world for them that they actually can take control over their life. And it's not always such a bad, terrible thing. If you could give three tips on how to improve the health of your brain, what would those tips be? Know that anything that's good for your heart is good for your brain. So increased blood circulation, um, exercise, you know, eating certain foods, um, you know, the omega, the omega threes and the blueberries and all those kinds of foods you can get online, all that stuff. So yeah, anything that's good for your heart is going to be good for your brain. Delay substance use as long as possible for these kids. And, um, you know, learn about some technique. I mean, I, I, I use meditation and mindfulness to help some, a lot of my kids, with the emotional regulation, um, you know, anything that you can do to feel, have these kids feel a little bit more in control will help their brain because they're going to be making better decisions. They're going to be feeling like they do have a little bit more control and they can make smart decisions. So encouragement, accountability, um, having somebody that they trust that they can trust and confide in is huge. So that's three, right? Yes. (laughs) For meditation, I think there's, there's such a stigma around meditation when it comes to, oh, I can't control my thoughts. Like I have too much stuff going on, especially as a a teenager and adolescent, how can, how can we find, or how can they find a path to starting meditation? Like how can we get them to want to do that? Yeah. Um, well, I think you can't, I don't think we can really make them want to, but if some kids are having some difficulty or want to prevent, you know, just through education, um, of wanting to prevent some of these things, because a lot of these kids are scared, you know, some of them, yeah, they're the risk takers and they're going to do it, but there are some that are, that they don't want to, and they wind up getting sucked in. So they want to have a little bit more. So they get scared. Um, understanding that meditation is not about a quiet mind. A lot of people think if I, if my mind isn't quiet, then I'm not meditating. Right. And that's just not, that's just not true. Mm-hmm. So what it is. And if you think about it, this is kind of cool. And meditation is like anything else in life. So if you get distracted, right, your mind wanders off and you bring it back, your mind wanders off and you bring it back your mind wanders off and you bring it back. It's like anything else in life. Like you're studying, the kids are studying and they're off. They're so distracted in a million different ways. Just knowing I need to bring it back, mm-hmm. back here, back to the present moment, right? They're going to get distracted. The phone's going to ring They're whatever, just bring it back. You know, it, you notice that there's like these trends. It's it, like life really, if you use meditation as a analogy for life, always coming back, bringing yourself back to the present moment, get out of the past, get out of the future, try to focus now. If you're wanting to cut, if you're wanting to um, be in a, in a steady state right now, now I'm not saying that you can't go into the future and be excited about different things that are happening in the future. That's great. But feel those feelings now, Mm -hmm. right? Enjoy them now. That's right. That's all we have. So 
there's a there's one app that I love. It's called Insight Timer. It's a free app, and um, they have all sorts of different meditations that people can use. There's some for teens. There's some for kids. They have courses. There's a there's a paid version where you can take a bunch of courses, which are excellent. They have really good teachers on there, well known teachers. Um, you can you can search on that app like beginning meditation. There's a bunch of things you can do. So yeah, so meditation and mindfulness is 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 a way for some people, not not everybody, obviously. But I find again, I was teaching mindfulness in the school for years that most kids really like it. They really like it, you know. And when they're when it's in school and it's an organized situation, especially when the teachers do it regularly, these kids actually ask for it. You know, they 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 know when it's time. They know when they're dysregulated. They come back for recess and they're all hyper. They'll actually ask for it, you know. So it's just about setting some norms, you know, like it's not normal to meditate in most households. It's not normal to be mindful or talk about that in most, in most households or in most classrooms, but it's getting more and more popular because, you know, the first two years when I quit medicine, I spent two years um, just going through all the research from the National Institute of Health about how mindfulness and meditation helps with emotional regulation helps with the brain. Mm. And I mean, our government spends millions of dollars every year on researching meditation and the benefits and mindfulness. So I figured I might as well get that information out there. You mm-hmm. know, it's been real helpful for me. And I know it's been a lot of, it's been real helpful for a lot of my clients. Mm-hmm. So, um, so that's the technique. That's one of the techniques that I use. And um, there's a lot of, it's, it's very research-based. It's a lot of, there's a lot of evidence to, to show that it does make physiological and psychological changes in people. So, Mm -hmm. and it's free. (laughs) That's great. (laughs) Um, So we're coming up to the end of the episode. So I wanted to ask you three final questions. And so this is essentially focused on each category of the podcast, live, love, and grow. So the first question I have is, what advice can you share about how to create a life that leaves a positive impact on the world? I think that teaching kids that who they are is the only thing the world needs. Who they are right now, who they are as a person, as not um, not anything decorated or designed or fake, just who they are is exactly what the world needs from them, just being themselves. I think that's the most important lesson any of us, any of us adults or hum- or kids can really. Yeah, I really believe that. Mm-hmm. You know, we're here to be, we were born to be who we are, who we truly are, and to find that person and let that person thrive. What are some practice or sorry, what are some practical ways people can cultivate self-love? I would say finding something within them that really resonates, whether that's being out in nature, whether it's certain readings, whether it's a, a certain spiritual or religious practice, um, whether it's being with animals, you know, something that really resonates with them and being okay with that and and in indulging in that at times if they need to, to using that as their time to connect with who they really are. And then, you know, finding a finding some peace and solace within themselves in whatever way they can. And then being able to, from that place, spread that with the world, you know, share that with the world. 
um, finding their what really authentically makes them happy. Um, there's so much false happiness, you know, going to social media, going to drugs, going to, um, you know, kids are uh, the sex they're having at such young ages. Again, that's another thing like delay, delay, delay. Um, they're not emotionally capable of having a sexual partner at that, you know, at these young ages. So finding their real, what really truly makes them who they are and sharing that from a place of, of empowerment. So final question, what strategies or practices do you recommend for people looking to enhance their self-awareness or self-reflection? Well, I think it's, it's personal, you know, for each individual, for me, meditation and mindfulness. Um, I follow a lot of spiritual teachers, um, different practices. There's mantras, there's chanting, there's a whole bunch of different things that, that, that it's endless what you can do to kind of come to yourself. But yeah, I think it's, it's really just exploring and it's actually fun, you know, to find what really works for you and utilize that. I don't know if that's not really a great answer, but yeah, I mean, for me, I, it's, it's, um, you know, exercise, doing breathing techniques, you know, that's all part of meditation and mindfulness, mm -hmm. um, religion and faith. I think faith is a huge thing to help people in, you know, in any religion or any, any culture. So yeah, just, um, having that just reinforce that, that what, what it is that makes them feel the, the most authentic within themselves. Great. Uh, so how can people connect with you? Um, well, I am on LinkedIn. I don't, I'm not posting as much as I was in the past. I've just, um, but I post approximately once a week. Um, that's Miriam Mandel MD and on LinkedIn. Um, and then I also have an email that you're welcome to share um, if, if people have any questions, but um, yeah, that's the best way to contact me. Do you want me to give you the email or? Uh, we, we we could uh we could put that in the, the show notes right afterwards yeah so i don't i don't do any other social media except linkedin so mm -hmm. that would be the best way to to um, find more of my information okay and how can the audience support you um just i mean for me i i just feel like the more we can understand our kids the more educated we are about the, uh, the adolescent brain about their behavior, what's normal, what's not, um, not to be working out of panic, um, seeking help when you just don't know. There's a lot of help out there. Um, and the, the best thing a parent can do is to regulate themselves because our kids pick up on our own dysregulation so quickly from infancy until we die, right? Especially during those those young young ages so the more regulated the more self-control the more um in harmony we are with who we are and what we believe and how we regulate our emotions it's going to make a huge world of difference than when when and, and we all do it we all panic i mean i've i've been there like i get it like it's it's we're human we we're not going to be perfect we're going to bring our stuff with us but when the storm is over and we can get ourselves together, regulate ourselves, talk to our kids, let them know that we're human, apologize to our kids, you know, treat them not like um, less than, you know, mm -hmm. treat them as, as um, not less than because they're not, you know, mm -hmm. they're just in a phase of development. Mm -hmm. So that would be my advice. Just, um, yeah, regulate yourself and then speak to your kids. Don't speak to them when you're dysregulated. It's just going to cause more harm than good. 
Well, I want to thank you for your time. I really appreciate that you came on to this podcast with me. You were one of the first people I wanted to talk to. And I know that I learned a lot and I hope that the audience learned a lot as well. And uh, just thank you for, for giving your time to. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for doing what you do. It was fun. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the choose to live, love and grow podcast. I look forward to seeing you next week. Don't forget to live, love and grow to be the best version of you. Oh, and one more thing. If you or a young man that you know suffer from victim mindset or are not reaching their fullest potential, then visit mattfindora.com to see how we can work together to become the best version of ourselves. That's mattfindora.com. The link will be in the show notes. And don't forget to subscribe. Thank you and have an outstanding day. Mm